We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a why you pay 72 million pounds for a talented player from Lille to win you a game against a team that lost to semi-professionals at the weekend in the Europa League. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. Vittoria did lose to a team of semi-pros at the weekend. Uh, you could argue they did it again midweek. I kid, I kid. But that's why you spend the 72 million pounds to prevent that from going wrong. And that's exactly what Pepe did quite brilliantly. We will get to that. This is a Friday edition of the podcast, which I have to admit is not always the most popularly attended, but those of you who are here are in for a treat because we got a lot to get to. Jose Mourinho will make an appearance in the pod, not on the pod, but in the pod. Uh, we are going to talk about Emery's pre-match comments because I think they're interesting. We'll break down the game and maybe look ahead quickly to the Premier League. All that and much, much more, as we say, on this edition of the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. We did put a free article out for everyone to read. Oscar Wood at Rihanna Wall on Twitter analyzed the Emery era statistically, uh, subjectively as well, and came to some conclusions that I think are really interesting. And even if you disagree with them, it is a well-written and well-thought-out uh, article. We have a podcast analyzing that article for patrons that's out as well. We'll get back to doing the rewatches next week. Frankly, just the schedule of the football hasn't allowed it, and the quality of the football has made it unpalatable. So hopefully those two things will change as well. And last but certainly not least, we finally have got our act together coordinating the guest from The Athletic who we wanted to bring on. So next week that'll be happening. And again, that is because of our partnership with The Athletic. So we should mention that if you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, you'll get half off, a month free, and our uh, love forever. And... uh that's going to do it from me. So Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. We certainly uh, wish that Paul was here. He is not able to be here, and we owe you a Scott appearance, so that'll be coming next week as well. 
what I would like to do first and foremost, Tim, is start before the match. Because isn't that where yeah. everything starts? Before the match. Um, Emery had some very interesting pre-match comments this week, and I want to discuss two of them with uh, both of you fine gentlemen. One is his comment that he has made us more competitive, that when he took over from Arsene Wenger, perhaps the creativity element was okay, but not the competitiveness, and he has worked on making us more competitive, which he has achieved, and now maybe needs to work more on the creativity side, but the competitiveness has improved. Um, I'm curious how you reacted to the assertion that we are more competitive, to his characterization of our football, and generally uh, his evaluation of the progress we're making. So I wonder what I kind of wonder what he means by competitive, um, because I still think that there is a language issue there. So when he says competitive, does he mean what everyone's taken it to mean, which is that, um, you know, we were getting thumped out of sight and now that doesn't happen anymore. I'm, I'm not sure that maybe he what... means we were beating teams too heavily previously. Yeah. And now those <laughs> yeah. games are more competitive. Well, yeah, there is that to it. Or I, I want because I mean, that's just plain not true um so i i wonder if when he talks about competitiveness i wonder if he means physical competitiveness i wonder if he means like um you know we don't get kicked around anymore and you know running metrics are up and and just generally that the physical kind of shape of the team is a bit better and we've introduced players into the team who are um you know who aren't pushed around so i wonder if that's what he means um, it, it, it's quite honestly, it's still a bit of a struggle to work out what Unai, Unai Emery means when he talks. Um, that's the only thing I could decipher. And to be fair, I'd say that that's probably true if that's what he meant. Um, albeit, I think that was a bit of a trope under Wenger that kind of stopped being true towards the end. It was true at one point, but, um, but then, yeah, but then I don't know. There's different ways of being competitive isn't there like against Sheffield United on Monday it wasn't like a physical thing it seemed much more of a we were maybe you know to to use Granite Xhaka's phrase a bit scared um and maybe a bit more of a mental thing but yeah to be, to be honest I'm grasping a bit because kind of as ever I, I just don't really know what he means yeah and, and I think that's fair and and I would also argue that like sometimes people telling themselves by accident and Maybe for Unai Emery, running about a lot more and getting stuck in is what a team should do. He asks for it from his players in training. He asks for it uh, from them on the pitch. And if they're doing that, he feels job done. Now, that's a stretch. I'm making a narrative leap there based on bias. I acknowledge that, um, which is great. And I'm going to do it. So there you go. Uh, Clive, I, I do want to get your take on those comments. And, you know, I, I think that... He also had an interesting point in there that maybe we can touch on. You know, he was asked about Torreira. He sort of, you know, hemmed and hawed, but he made it very clear that he liked Fabinho as a player we looked at and a player we wanted to bring in. And I have to tell you, this rubbed me terribly the wrong way. Lucas Torreira was brought in as a young player. Let's not forget how young. Early 20s, just making his way, becoming a, a regular starter for Uruguay in that deeper defensive midfield role, a position that had plagued Arsenal for a long time and had established himself in Syria as a bright talent for the future. We bring him in. It's a savvy buy. He doesn't cost us a fortune. He He's a player who seems to address a clear need. And he, 
he looked good for the first half of last season when he was playing a lot. Maybe less so later in the season. I'm not sure a midfield two and a back three suits him. I'm not sure what his role in that should be. He's been weirdly used this season. There's been speculation that Emery prefers a taller, bigger guy in there. And then sure enough, he goes and says he likes Fabinho. Which, if you're Torreira and you're playing midweek and you're not playing Premier League games or certainly not regularly starting Premier League games and your coach is talking about how much he liked Fabinho... I just think this is a terrible way that we have handled what could have been a really important signing, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's gone after this season. So in, a, in addition to the competitive quotes, I'm curious how you react to him discussing uh, a Fabinho in the context of Torreira. Uh, I think he discussed Fabinho in the context of Pepe settling in, didn't he? So, well, uh, okay, yeah, I mean, that, you're right. I'm is, sort of connecting the dots, you're right. Yeah, this is what we're suffering with at the moment. We're suffering with a lack of clarity. When there's a lack of clarity, people do exactly what you've done. They join, they join the dots up. Right? So he was talking about adaptation. It took Fabinho six months. We need to be patient with Pepe. In the very next moment, Dice scores a goal. I think the more the stranger comment was around Sabayas taking. Because you're, if you're aligning that comment to Sabayas, mm. he's here for a year. And if he's going to take six months to adapt and see you later. Yeah, then what the, the hell are we doing? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Uh, I, I think the whole, and your point, and what Tim was alluded to earlier, what we're suffering with as um, fans and, and analysts and close watchers and, and nerds, which we probably are all of the above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So yeah. uh, we are struggling with clarity and clarity of communication. Now, we all want communication. This guy's this guy's English has has not got worse since last year. I just think we're growing tired of it. I think we're growing tired of the lack of clarity. And the more bits of information that we get, the more we can use that information to drive our own thoughts, feeling, and, and biases. I do think um, we are at danger of sort of missing some of these points and missing what's really important. Your point about Torreira is really important because he is a young player on the up. He is somebody that's come in that we really, I felt, was transformational last year for a period, particularly under Spurs game, to how we played. Bringing some attributes I felt we needed for many, many years. An all-round midfielder that can get to the pitch of the ball and not allow us to be bullied and pressed and and actually just take the ball of people and force transitions. I was so excited about this player coming in. And we seem to be in danger of making this player less than the sum of his own parts. And that, for me, is my only criticism, one of my major criticisms, of a coach is to maximise potential, not diminish potential. And that's what I feel he's doing with certain players, and not just Torreira, but other players, which I'm sure you'll get to later in the podcast. And while while Arsenal fans are focused on the big one, the 31-year-old on 350 a week, there are other players that are good value, on the way up, younger players, which are critical for our future, which I feel... The mismanagement of is far more important to the future of Arsenal Football Club than that of our of our superstar franchise player that's been here since 2013. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important we don't miss that. And let's not talk about the, our striker situation as well and their contractual situation. So there are key pillars with this club that we feel are not being managed appropriately, and the messages coming back to us are not clear and concise as we would like them to be forcing us to have maybe uh, different interpretations, some correct, some incorrect, but most of them subjective. And I think that's a, once you have that gap, you create something that can be arbitraged by rumour, and then we start to think about different people. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that is really fair, actually. And I have some sympathy for Emery only in this respect. I think that when you are coach, clearly coach, not manager, you know you're on a two-plus-one type contract, you know you're not long for the club, your incentives are not aligned with the club in every way. You are not necessarily aligned with thinking long-term, developing young players, the future of the club, continuity of the club. Your job's to win and win right now. And I think one of the problems we've seen with Emery is he has a very, very short time horizon for his decision-making. I mean, hell, his tactics are 45 minutes at a time. You know, his his rotations, his substitutions are win the next game. He coaches every game like it's his last, uh, would that, that were the case. But, um, Tim, the one thing I think none of us want to do is discuss Mesut Ozil. It has become a worthless, pointless conversation that really has no bearing on the team, no bearing on the club, no bearing on us uh, competitively. So let's talk about Mesut Ozil for a second. Um, <laughs> the reason I feel we have to bring this up at the top is because of the stuff that happened before the match. So I'm trying to speak chronologically here to some extent. Uh, there was a video that circulated them at training having a conversation that certainly didn't look particularly... Um, uh, friendly, for lack of a better way to put it. it. It certainly looked like they were hashing something out, like there was some disagreement there. Um, it wasn't particularly amicable in appearance. We don't we don't know that to be the case. We're just judging. He posts on social media after a picture of himself laughing with the caption, you make me laugh. <laughs> Worth noting, this picture was liked by basically the entire Arsenal squad, certainly everyone that we care about in any significant way. Aubameyang, Lacazette, you name it. Um, he mm. also posted... Uh, a picture of himself with Robert Pires saying, great training session. Hmm, wonder why he's referencing training. I worked really hard. Pires comments on it. Yep, it was a hard session. Good job, Messit. And again, the whole team likes it. Emery had recently said Ozil was training harder. Ozil's recently said he's training hard. He he was not in the squad again. And whether, you know, there are two separate issues here. There is the issue of whether Messit Ozil would necessarily improve our football. We don't know if that's the case. There's some people that are sure he mm. would. There are others who say he's passed his best. But clearly, this situation has an impact on the club beyond what he could provide on the pitch. So I'm curious if you can try to create any clarity from what appears to be a very muddled circumstance. Yeah, it's it's coming to define Unai Emery's reign, um, this actually, much in the way that Bruce Rioch taking on Ian Wright did. Um, I, I think there were real, real similarities there. And, and Bruce Rioch, you know, just was never going to, he was never going to take Ian Wright down. He was, he was just, he was too big. And, um, you know, even though I, like Arsenal did improve under Bruce Rioch, like notably they went up seven places in the league, but he was done for when he took on Ian Wright because, you know, it was just, he was bigger, like Ian Wright was bigger than Bruce Rioch. And uh, I, I'm kind of getting that feeling here. What was interesting last night was, you know, I said at Sheffield United, you know, there's no shouts against the manager or anything like that yet. A, a couple of times the Ozil song went up. And so what does that tell you? There's your focal point. And I think you can interpret um, chanting Ozil's name when we were 2-1 down in the second half and, and just before half time. I think you can interpret that as the fans expressing their frustration in, with the manager in yes. an indirect mm -hmm. way. Um, it's very pointed. It's not quite, we want Emery out, but it, but it's a battle line's been drawn here. We're losing. And this, you know, this, this is where we're, you, you know, this has been made into a completely polemic, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one, head to head battle. Yeah, um, Ozil which, has become the avatar for anti Emery sentiment, essentially. Yep. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, 
you know, Ozil has got the PR clout to do that. Emery has not. Um, you know, I mean, look, Emery speaks to the media like two, three times a week, but he still doesn't have the clout that Ozil has um, with his social media platforms. Even if he was a good communicator, which he's not, um, he still doesn't have the clout that Ozil has and he still doesn't have the kind of the tribalism that um, Ozil inspires. And um, it, it just, it discontinually just feels like a really like a like a dark cloud hanging over everything um and it's, it's why we keep talking about it because it's not insignificant it's not insignificant it's not you know it's not something you, you can just ignore you can't you know it's like um i mean i mean it's literally like the elephant in the room you cannot ignore it and even if we were winning and playing well i still think it would be a bit of an issue in the background but while we're not playing well and while we have particularly while we have creative issues you know rightly or wrongly people are going to point to that and yeah it's 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 creating it's creating something we really don't need we we just really really don't need it yeah um and you know for the image of the club and everything like that you know other players from other clubs look at this kind of thing and it just gives the impression of 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 a football club that's you know that's just not right that's just not um, that's just not a kind of positive, healthy environment. And that's, you know, it goes without saying, that's bad. How bad you think it is, is subjective, but um, it's not good, is it, basically? This is not good for anything. No, it's not. A house divided shall not stand, right? Or cannot stand, or whatever the expression is. Like, this is a house divided. And, you know, I think there's a few unlucky details for this, for Emery, right? Like, if Mesut Ozil was a striker, I don't know that there would be as much attention paid no. because we have fantastic ones right um yeah yeah go ahead yeah and do you know what i was thinking earlier today as well i was thinking like um about like uh, my spidey senses are tingling a little bit in terms of a lot of the things that tend to happen before a manager gets sacked are happening <laughs> at the moment and and that could be like projection on my part but because I, I was thinking today right like what you know what if like i don't know Emery and Caicedo go and Freddie takes over and, you know, we've got no idea how that will go because Freddie Lundberg has never managed um, at the professional level. But, but Or even if it was someone else other than Lundberg, I, I'm just kind of thinking it would still be a really daunting job. But I reckon, like I've seen this so many times before, there's some bad feeling generated between the manager and a couple of players. He gets sacked. The new guy comes in and he thinks I've got two such quick wins here. Like I might not be able to sort this team out totally, but if I drop Xhaka for Torreira and put Ozil in, that feels like two really quick wins that, you know, will not completely solve. I mean, it might, but it probably won't completely solve and make us brilliant. But that'll probably make us better like yeah. pretty much off the bat. And, you know, if I, if I were like Freddie Lundberg sitting there, I I'd be thinking about that at the moment. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, not playing Ozil has knock on effects that you might not think about as negative, but they are to a certain extent because what are we getting instead of Ozil? We're getting Torreira out of position at some time. So he's suffering and, and he's not growing and developing footballistically. And, or you're getting Joe Willick, who's not a 10. And in the first half against Sheffield, he was poor. He has to get hauled off 
early because, you know, at halftime because he's not playing there. Then what do you get? You get Ceballos at 10. Ceballos also isn't a 10. So what happens? He gets evaluated as not being good enough and his loan doesn't start going as well as it could be. And I'm not suggesting that any 10 would play particularly well in Emery's system because I'm not sure it emphasizes that area of the pitch particularly well, period. And I'm not sure the distances are right to bring a 10 into the game. But what I'm saying is... By not using Ozil, you are forcing other solutions into the team that are hurting those players too. And Clive, look, <clears throat> I think I can summarize your opinion uh, pretty accurately, as I always do, that Mesut Ozil is not the solution footballistically for Arsenal. And I think that is a totally fair and reasonable analysis. I think reasonable people can disagree about what Ozil could bring on the pitch. But I certainly think it is reasonable to think that Mesut Ozil is not going to solve our problems from a footballing standpoint. But surely you have to agree that the situation as it exists right now, with a war of words and social media posts and players liking posts and you know, disgruntled conversations at the training ground and you know a, a, a talking point for all the red tops to, to dig into, I mean, this can't be good for the club regardless of whether you think Ozil has a lot left to give on the pitch. Yep, I totally agree. And, and, and to quote one of my other sayings, it just makes us look smaller as a club. You know, if we're in disarray, then you just don't own your size. And yeah, I find it disappointing. I find it misplaced um, on the football side of things. There's so many things. If we were to discuss Mesut Ozil football-wise, we'd probably all say similar things. A lot of it's in the past. A lot of it's wrapped up into a few memorable performances. But we, you know, our, our minds are playing tricks with us, and you know, just and you've, um, I've talked about this before, but I'm not alone. You know, teams don't play with that player anymore. You know, but because Emery's not been clear on how he wants to play, he's leaving himself open to number ten comparisons, which you alluded to. You know, can I sit here and say that Sabias, Willock, Torreira, and he even tried Saka in that role, which shows you shows what how what he's trying to do. Can I say that they are better than Mesut Ozil in that number ten role? I can't. I, mean, I can't. And so, but if you had a, a slightly different system, where you had different co- construction, and then the Mesut Ozil role is not a discussion point in this how we're playing at the moment. It is a discussion point, and he's doing that. So you need to be smart and say, okay, this is how I want to play. I've got a situation where I've got a number 10 role that's required. And I'm going to start, if I'm not sure who who's it, I'm going to rotate it. But that guy has to be in my rotation or he has to be out of the club, one or the other. And they can't say, if the club have decided, and I will say the club, because I don't think the coach has that decision on his own any longer. So if the club has decided that Meza Ozil is no longer fit for purpose for Arsenal Football Club, they can't really say it. So Emery has to wear that. It becomes a selection point of view. If the club have got a place for him in January and his Ornstein interview was really saying to everybody, yeah, I'm really happy here. I, I want to stay here beyond my contract, blah, 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 which normally means I'm not going for free. You have to pay me up and make sure I get my full money if I do go somewhere and I don't actually have to go anywhere. You know? So he's putting his feet in the ground and when he does that, he normally follows it up just like he has done with a social media blast and we all fall for it and it creates division which goes back to the first point a divided club is not going to go anywhere and so I used to dismiss this Ozil thing as something well you know what he's on the downslide it's not important but I think, I think I'm wrong I think it is important if, because it doesn't matter what I think we've, we've lost serenity within the club and we're now vulnerable to every single rumour 
and players have now got excuses of plenty all around them. And seeing the game last night, it was almost like there was a mood around the club which has permeated beyond the first team into the bright second team. And that collective malaise was there up until the last 20 minutes or so, right? So, um, <clears throat> so it, and we're all part of this, by the way, how we digest information, how we assimilate it, how we absorb it. We're all part of it. You know, including the podcast, you know, we try our best to be reasonable and diff- different points of view, but we're all part of the noise, and none of that noise is positive at the moment, and, and I, I find that disappointing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would take issue with the idea that we're all trying to be reasonable, but the rest of it I agree <laughs> with. Um, yeah. Look, and by the way, you know, you don't have to think Mesut Ozil is going to win the Ballon d'Or this season. You also. I don't think can fairly say he is a husk of a player. He had a very productive preseason. The couple times he's played this season, he played against Forrest. He set up the most chances in in the time he was on the pitch of any player for Arsenal this season in any game. Again, awful opposition. I understand that. Um, Against Watford, while he was on, again, a terrible game, but a game where I thought he was influential and decent. I'm not saying he's going to come on and suddenly make a huge difference. He may have nothing left. But... We've seen him a little bit, and it's not like he's a husk of a player who's going to have to go out there and just stand there and wave to the crowd and, you know, is, is there symbolic? You know, you know what I say, Elliot? Yeah. Everybody in this squad has had an opportunity recently. Yeah, except him. him <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, and they've all fucked it up. And, <laughs> and football is about opportunity, you know. Let's have an opportunity. Let's see what you got. I mean, I, I want to see him have an opportunity because I want to see if my brain's right on this, if I've got a good memory or not. And, you know, let, let's see him. Let's decide. Because the longer we don't see him, the more the better he gets, right? So, um, and, and the more problem solved, problems solved. And the less get. fit he gets. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and exactly. this is the funny thing, right? Like, you know, Mesut Ozil is if he's clever on the pitch, he's more clever on social media because, and, and he's got Robert Perez in his pocket because he posts the training picture. Trained with this AFC legend this morning. Always a pleasure to see you, my bro. Okay, now we know the big guffaw is apparently he's not playing because he's not training. What is Robert Perez's response to him on Instagram? My pleasure, bro. It was a hard session. Like, there's no ambiguity there. It's two guys saying, I'm training and training hard. It's not my fault I'm not getting picked. So, you know, I do think that there is something that happens to managers late in their time at a club where they entrench themselves. They dig their heels in and they say, this is my decision. And if I am manager of this club, I'm sticking with it. And until this job is taken from me, I'm going to stick with it. And I actually think a manager who's comfortable in his skin and comfortable in his job sometimes is willing to second guess his decisions because he says, you know what, maybe I got this wrong. I worry that Emery is in the phase of this now where he's like, I will not back down from this situation because he feels a little under siege. Again, pop psychology, but you know, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Can I just say one last thing? Tim sort of alluded to it. I'm not sure if he, because he hasn't played for so long, I'm not sure if he could be successful in in the game. You know, he would need, because he's not going to play for for the under-23s, is he? He actually needs minutes now. He needs minutes on the pitch before he gets to the first team level. And so he's now in a situation where he's, he's played so little. I, mean, how, I don't know how long ago Watford was. It feels like six, seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago. He hasn't really played a game since Watford. And if he was to play a game now, how could he succeed? Well, he could succeed against Vittoria if he was given that opportunity. You know, yeah, I mean, that. I agree. I agree. But just thinking, rewinding back, it'd be very difficult to succeed when you haven't played for two months, expected to come in and save the day. So the dice is actually loaded against him. Yeah. And potentially, he might play him in a game in two weeks' time. He hasn't played for like nine weeks or something like that. 
that is almost hanging someone out to dry because you yeah. know he's not going to be able to get up to have that match fitness and match speed, etc. I think this is a very dicey situation. The longer it goes on, the more it's heading to a, a January exit. Yeah. All right. Well, so, uh, by the way, I saw the United report on Twitter was tweeting something about United being interested in taking Mesut Ozil, and I was like, Jesus, are we going to be able to pull this off again? Do they not realize how much they're paying Alexis to be at Inter? Um, Tim, let's get into the game a little bit. And one of the things that I think tends to happen when you evaluate young players, and there were quite a few young players in this squad, is there's always the caveat that, oh, did well for a young player, it's a big step up in level, yada, yada, yada. And I, I don't dispute that, but I think we should put into context for a minute how bad Vittoria are. Vittoria lost at the weekend, genuinely, with a strong starting 11 to a semi-professional team. They're on 12 points in a league with teams that are no good. I mean, they've, they've never won against English opposition in England. They lost to Standard 2-0, who we... Th- throttled and no are not that good this is not a good team and so I think you know you could make an argument that the U23 competition that our academy kids play in is probably about on the level of Vittoria or certainly not far from it I mean there's a failed Spurs academy player in their team who also scored against us so I only say that because I think if we're going to start to evaluate young players, you know, the Premier League is a big step up and it might be asking a bit too much I think this is a level where they should perform and so I hate to start here, but I, I do want to start with Ainsley Maitland-Niles for a minute. Um, mm. at, at some point, it seems he lost confidence in himself as a defender, and he started advertising to anyone who would listen that he's not a defender and that he's actually a right winger. This is the second game now where he's been given that chance, and the second game where I think he's disappointed, although much more so in this game than the last. And I, I hate to go into soft factors and mentality, but I think in this case you can. I think you look at Maitland-Niles and you see a player who is really, really doubting himself now. And when he gave the ball away for their goal, he looked like he wanted the pitch to swallow him up. Do you worry that Maitland-Niles is maybe in in something of a downward spiral in terms of his confidence and his levels where this isn't leading to good things for him? Yeah, 100%. Because, you know, he's he's seen that the job he had, his in, was Hector Bellerin's understudy and that's been taken from him by Callum Chambers and and fairly brutally like and he begged Callum, off it to be fair <laughs> yeah 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 but he was you know he was still playing and yeah. and fairly inconsistent having some good games some not so good and now Callum Chambers is a, a guy who you know six to eight weeks ago if you'd have suggested Callum Chambers playing at right back you know there'd have been murders um, I mean, maybe therein there is uh, that that offers some hope or inspiration to Ainsley Maitland Niles that it's not completely finished. But um, yeah, I mean, given his kind of superior athletic athleticism to Callum Chambers as well, um, you know, that's that's got to be difficult to take. And you know, he's not really played for he's not played since the Liège game so that's like three and a half weeks between games which you know you lose the sense of the game quite quickly and you lose your spacing and your rhythm um I also think I I couldn't quite work out what position which position a lot of those players were playing in um I think the intention was to have quite a fluid midfield because Emil Smith-Rowe definitely started as a 10 but then moved quite quickly out to the left 
And then well, like, I think he moved out to the left when we took Maitland Niles off and brought Ceballos on to play ten. No, it was, no, it was, it was definitely that? before that. Okay, definitely before Shows that. There was <laughs> there was um there was some rotation around there, and I, and and I don't think that worked just because the players don't know one another well enough and haven't done it often enough. I think again, this kind of goes back to a bit of an issue with Emery. You need to build like a tactical foundation before you start adding bells and whistles like swapping of positions and rotation you i think you've got to put a base in before you can do that um but you know to be fair this look this is the europa league this is the second string you know you you're not going to get that that's just what happens when you play your second string and we all want him to play the second string in in this so um but yeah the, the mistake for the goal i mean there was still a lot that happened afterwards it's not like he coughed the ball up in his own penalty box there was there was quite a bit of distance to travel and it's quite concerning that we were we were so open um and so vulnerable from that moment but i think i think there was a mixture of things going on there in terms of um you know not really having that relationship with his teammates but yeah principally he he does look like his confidence has gone um which is probably a big part of the reason he's not really being picked anymore. And then it becomes a vicious cycle, doesn't it? You don't get picked because your confidence is crap. And so your confidence gets worse. And then, you know, this, like getting hooked at half time, that's got to be worse. Okay. Like after can I, can I stay giving with you up for, a goal. Can I stay with you yeah, for yeah. a question about that real quick? And then I promise, Clive, we'll, we'll talk Maitland Niles and Willick as well. But <clears throat> um, this drove me nuts. And this was something that made me genuinely feel disdain towards Unai Emery. He, he wants to win every game. <clears throat> Fine, so be it. I understand the pressure to do that, and I understand that long-term goals are not aligned with his short-term goals because he's a short-term coach at Arsenal. But these are young players, Joe Willock and Maitland-Niles. They hopefully have a future at Arsenal or some value to Arsenal in some way in the squad, you know, as, as stars somewhere in between being sold off, whatever the case is. But nurturing them is important. You have put yeah. them into tough positions. Maitland-Niles has played right back for you in the Premier League. Joe Willock has played 10. He's played 8. Okay. You're at home. You're losing to a terrible, terrible team. There's every indication that you should be able to turn it around. Now, admittedly, we almost didn't. But every indication you should have trust in these players to beat this team. What do you gain by hauling off two academy kids at halftime against a terrible team at home in a second-rate competition other than destroying their confidence at the expense of maybe getting three virtually worthless points. So um, I'm going to read a tweet from Richard Jolly, um, who's a, a good journalist, good follow on Twitter. Um, Unai Emery has made six halftime substitutions this season. The players he substituted, Reese Nelson, Bakayo Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe, Joe Willock twice, and Ainsley Maitland-Niles. All academy Youth policy. Kids, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess I have kind of mixed feelings on it <laughs> in that I guess I get it more with Maitland-Niles because if his confidence is gone and he's giving away goals, you know, it, I suppose it depends on how he feels really. The, the Willock one, yeah, I, I'm kind of more with you on that because that's that's twice in a week and I really don't think Torreira and Willock is a suitable double pivot. It doesn't really suit either of them. Again, I think that's just a consequence of playing your second string. That's going to happen sometimes. You're going to have some slightly ill-fitting pieces. I don't think there was really any need to kind of ostracize Willock like that twice in a week because that's, again, this is worse for him confidence-wise 
than if he'd played zero minutes this week. Yep. Um, although, although maybe he's learned something. You know, you could you could look at it like that that um, he's wiser for the experience. But yeah, d- like definitely the Willock one. I, I thought was um, I thought was a little bit unnecessary. And, and let me just say this: this is where I think there are issues with Unai Emery. I'm not going to say he's an idiot. I don't think he's an idiot. I think he's a guy who likes to watch video and get tactical and tinker and play and get into the weeds of <clears throat> football tactics. But he's not. A, he's clearly not a man manager. He's clearly not no. a people person. And I know it sounds dumb, but to a young kid who's coming out of the academy, getting subbed off at 54 minutes is different than 45 minutes. It just is. Yep. Coming yeah, out yeah. from halftime, being in the team, you got your hour, you got your 55 minutes. It's a substitution. No big deal. Good job. Yeah. You did your best. Get get back here. That little difference is the difference it's between... Almost, yeah. It's almost like then it's like pre-planned. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, I was it thinking 60 them. minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just think that those kinds of things are what a good man manager, a good... Uh, guy who understands personalities and psychology can do, and I don't know that Emery has that in him. Clive, I'm sorry to shut you out of this for so long, so there's a lot here, and I want you to dig into it. I won't really throw much to you other than to say, what did you make of Maitland-Niles and Willock and the decision to pull them off at halftime? Um, uh, first thing first, I think Emery is a man-major. He just man-majors in a style that we don't agree with. He's uh, an authoritarian, and he's not collegiate. He's not a developer. He's not nurturing in a way that we've all been brought up with, and that's the style I prefer. But some people are very different. They like to create a distance. They don't want to get close to their players because they're going to have to drop them and mistreat them. And some people are far more communicative where communication and your messaging is a key part of your coaching style. Well, not I coach, but people will say, oh, you know, I don't play out cones. But when it comes to players, messaging, style, psychology, how to play, where to play, what to do when, how to manage certain moments. That is everything that I try to do. If I couldn't communicate appropriately, I couldn't do it. Simple as that. Some people don't need that. They've got their systems, got their coaching, got their cones. They do what they do. They have their other people to be shouting and barking, and they create that authoritarian atmosphere. I always remember the very first video that came out from Arsenal. He walked to see the players, and he walked up, and he stood there in the middle of them, and he beckoned them forward. They all walked forward two yards. And I thought, bang, I know exactly what you are, mate. You're going to rule this place your way. Mm. And they, be- they better get with it. So as soon as you see that, don't expect him to be soft. Don't expect him to look after kids. Although he has given them opportunities and he'll be remembered for that. But don't expect him to be that great man-major because he's not. He's a man-major in his style. And that style works for many, many people. He just doesn't for me and some of our players by the sounds of it so on the younger players I've always called Maitland-Niles a groupie and by that I mean he's a good time player when things are good he's great he's really happy you know first one celebrations all the rest of it his issues has come because he's had criticism his ability to manage criticism is not great I think he's a very sensitive lad he reminds me of Oxlade Chamberlain the younger Oxlade Chamberlain he needs love Guess what? Guess what? He's not getting Arsenal right now. He's not getting love. He's not getting love from the fans because you play a bad pass, you're in trouble. He turns around to the manager. He doesn't care. And that's why players will always go to a communicator around the club. And that communicator seems to be Lundberg at the moment. Someone they can work with, they can align with, they can share their pain with, and he's willing to listen, to build them. And that's his role as an assistant. The assistant who doesn't have to hire people and fire people is always deemed as uh, the good guy. Good cop, bad cop. At the moment, Freddie's good cop. Everyone loves him. 
Never had to pick a side in the first team level yet. So it's okay. He can be there to pick up the pieces, and that's exactly why the club put him there, or he asked to be he asked to be put there. I do worry about Maitland Niles. I do worry about the fact that he's another in betweener. So football wise, we're not sure what he is. I listened to James today, and I agree with him. His skill set is best used on the outside of the pitch. I think if he could pick his role, he would be right side of a diamond. But I also think he could play wing back, and obviously he can play right back. He needs to work that out. He needs to work out what he is and then really learn that role and not run away from it. Because we saw last night, crowd team, no wing mirrors, back to goal. That touch would always go back straight in front of you. You don't play it to an area that you can't see when someone can can take you off the touch and he got robbed. And I think it crushed him. It crushed him because it's another mistake and he's focusing on the mistakes at the moment. So his ability to manage these dark moments is just indicative of a young player that's struggling at the level. He has the talent. He has the ability. He's done it for a long time. He's forgotten what he's done. He's saved us many millions by playing left back, right back, wing back, right wing back. While other players have been falling down with injury, he's stayed fit. He stayed the first team for a long time. I think he's burnt out. He needs a complete rest. He needs a break. He needs an arm around the shoulder, and he'll come back. As for Willock, I didn't see this coming. I just thought his his um, upward cycle was just really wasn't going to slow down until it stops, and it stopped for the last few weeks. And I think it's, he just again, it's, I don't want I don't want to to be another player that's almost trapped by this ten role. You know, he's just another number eight. He's a free eight, right? He'd be Jordan Henderson if he played for Liverpool. So let's stop making him a 10, because he's not a 10. He's an eight that works hard, right, in a V. Does he work hard? Because I have to say, in this game, I thought the thing that was appalling about his performance, uh, appalling is too strong a word, but really disappointing was the tracking back. There, were, there was a lot of jogging back towards goal, I, I thought, and I he thought was guilty Maitland of that. Niles, I thought Maitland Niles was... Again, I thought Maitland Niles was terrible on the, on the recovery. I think one of our weak points is our ability to recover. I think if he was to summarize, and maybe, you know, I'll take your point in, in this game, Manic, because I didn't see the first half really, really closely. Um, if you were to summarize, you would call Willock a two way, hard working player that seeks opportunities high up in the pitch with his pure ability to travel, travel with the ball, and travel into the box and arrive. He's, he, to me, is a, a number eight that works two ways. That's what I think, in summary. Right. So if he didn't work back hard enough in this game, I won't argue. I think he's a hard-working British player. So that's, that's how he's brought up. That has an eye for a goal when he gets into high up, high up on the pitch. Maitland Niles, I find it, you know, I think he's a wide player with, with, real, with real speed. But I think he's more a defensive player. I don't think he's proactive enough to be a, an attacking player. And if he's going to put himself up against Saka and Pepe, it's not going to happen, is it? They're just different dynamics, different players, different expectation at the top end of the pitch. That's not him. He's a midfielder stroke defender, and that's what he is. And he needs to start recognising that. So, um, so, yeah, that's how I see it. So I think the thing that will, just to finish up, mate, the thing that will um, hurt me the most, if you start, don't worry about messing with Ozil, but if you start messing with the young kids and you and you mess up 10 years of academy development, if you start messing about with Aubameyang and Lacazette, then watch your background because that's the issue. That's the future yeah. of the club. That's the future of the club right there. So don't, don't worry about Ozil. Worry about that lot. Yeah, I, I think I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I, I think... The problem for academy players, too, is they need consistency. <clears throat> and Willick isn't getting it, for sure. He plays a half at at 10 uh, on Monday. He plays a half at 8 
on Thursday, and he doesn't look particularly comfortable in either position, but the system changes not not even game to game. The system changes half to half. And players, experienced players, need some consistency. Young players need a lot more of it. I do want to say there is nothing wrong with evaluating young players. Like, if I'm critical of Joe Willick, it doesn't mean I hate him. I don't think he's good, always crap, get rid of him. It's just we're seeing these players get some playing time in the first team, so we're naturally going to evaluate them. I think Willick can work on his off-the-ball intensity and tracking back. I think he can work on finding space without the ball. I think what he does when he gets the ball to feet is excellent. I think he is, he is a very good player with the ball at his feet. I think what he does with the ball not at his feet is something he still has to work on, both defensively and when his partners have it in possession to find space to drop into. And those are hard skills, and hopefully they will come for him, and I think they could. It's not helped by playing a different position every half of football. I just don't see that helping him. And what I worry is that we are creating hero complex. You know what we'll do? We're not going to take a break. We'll skip the break, okay? I was going to put in an ad break here. We're not going to do it, but all I ask is that you, uh, if you are interested in The Athletic, you go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and sign up. If you're not, no big deal. Or sign up for our Patreon, or don't. Either way, fine. That's the ad break. There you go. Hope that's okay. Uh, But Tim, what I worry is we're going to get into savior complexes. Um, We have holes in the squad, and we are trying to fill them with academy players, and it's a different academy player every few weeks. Um, we went real over the top with our praise for Maitland-Niles early in the season because he had a star turn at right back against Newcastle. Uh, we went huge on Joe Willick praise. Uh, I can't remember which game it was, maybe Burnley. I, one of the games, he was really good. Um, now maybe it's Smith-Rowe and Martinelli's turn. Maybe we're going to see Smith-Rowe pop up playing 10 uh, against Crystal Palace with Martinelli on the left and Saka getting some time out of the squad. I mean, he He was a savior for a bit. Are you worried that these little cameos, these bright cameos like like, Smith Rose and Martinelli's, for example, uh, in the Europa League over the last two fixtures, is just going to lead to this rotating savior complex of kids coming in, being thrown to the wolves in a system that's not working great, then eventually disappointing because the the system is not supporting these players, and then the cycle repeats itself. Yeah, definitely, and uh, you know we've we've been here before, haven't we? Um, because essentially, that's that's what happens with young players; they're inconsistent. Um, that that's just and the price of paying them uh, playing them is that you have to put up with a bit of that inconsistency and we've seen that before you know how many like Carling Cup games back in the day did we see them destroy someone 5-6-0 at Highbury and you go oh they're going to be brilliant um, but then you know you put them in and, and actually they, they have some inconsistencies to iron out and yeah I think you've got to absolutely expect that when you're when you're playing like a, academy kids in the first team that's you know unless they're absolutely exceptional that's that's just what happens that's that's just part of the process and you know with with someone like uh I, you know i really like the look of of martinelli i think he's got some really interesting ingredients um but you know yeah let's before we go like absolutely ott on him like, you know let's see him in an away game in the premier league um you know away from away from the carpet um against teams that are kind of semi-engaged in in the cup competitions um you know which is not to knock what martinelli has done at all but you know let, let's see that replicated and then in a tougher environment and once you see that you can introduce um you introduce them more regularly see if they can do it week after week that, that's just the process that's what it is we know that we've seen it before you know i pretty much i I'm making an assumption here that pretty much everyone listening remembers the whole project youth thing. Um, so we've seen it. We, we know how this goes. Um, and, and that's why 
like I kind of always say, what you what you really want is to make these guys squad players, make them involved, give them minutes, um, give them minutes in the cups, you know, let let them come off the bench and things like that. Uh, and actually, I, I quite liked the way Emery used some of them earlier in the season when they were coming off the bench for the last 20, 30 minutes and using their energy and disrupting games. Um, I, I quite like that. I, th- I think that's that's probably quite realistic for someone like Joe Willock at the moment or Martinelli, just like, or Saka, just giving them that last kind of 20, 30 minutes when the game's a little less structured and you bring on legs to throw at the opposition. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's a good way forward and, and you do it slowly, um, you know, but, but you're right. Like um, the young players in, in this respect are no different to the senior players in that, it's an inconsistent team with inconsistent tactics, inconsistent formations that seem to be asked to do something different every week. And whether you're 18 or 32, nobody thrives in that environment. Nobody does. Every player wants to be a bit settled somehow. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a balance to be struck there, like trying to trying to build tactical flexibility into that. But essentially... You want to know your role inside out. You want to know, you know, you want to go into autopilot at times in terms of your spacing and where your teammates are. And and no Arsenal player has the opportunity to do that really um, under Unai Emery. Yeah, I I mean, I think that is really well said. And and I, you know, one of the things that I wanted to discuss on this episode was Ceballos. <clears throat> and I'm kind of not that interested anymore because... I think we are moving towards a period where this is going to just feel like a lost season for Ceballos to some extent. I mean, we're we're approaching November. He doesn't have a consistent position in the team. The team is a bit of a mess tactically. I think he is a, f- a fairly good player with some clear flaws. I think what became clear to me in this game, I, I shouldn't say clear to me in this game, but what's becoming clear to me is he is a small space player. He is a short distance player. He likes to be close to a teammate. He likes to exchange quick passes. He likes to beat a guy off the dribble and give the ball. He does not like long distances. One thing that was really weird in this game, I don't know if you guys noticed it, but he had a number of 10, 15-yard passes like as slowly as you could ever hit a pass. Like It looked like they were coming to a dead stop before they arrived at their target. And I think about the one game that he really bossed, the Burnley game. And if you think back to the Burnley game, oh, he's right next to a teammate every time he's got the ball. They're three yards apart. They're two yards apart. Bing, bong, boom, right? I don't know what that means. But, you know, just pinging passes and and then up the pitch they go. And the midfield right now is just so much space. This flat three stretched across the pitch. There's no verticality. There's no connectivity between the midfielders and the front line. And I just think it's it's a situation that Ceballos can't excel in. And for right now, I, I don't know that there's a way forward for him in that system. So... I think given that he's probably not going to be an Arsenal player long-term, the more interesting thing here, and we will get to Pepe because that's obviously a big one, is the Tierney-Bellerin thing. I, I mean, this this is, if there's a bright future on the horizon for us, it is certainly going to revolve a little bit around these two. So Clive, a couple of things here. First of all, I thought Tierney was weak defensively in some situations, but really good going forward. I think Bellerin still looks a bit off the pace, to say the least, um, although he did have some of his sort of trademark cut inside his man and and sort of run to the channel kind of moves. There's some signs of the old Bellerin in there, but he, he does look a little rusty. How do you feel about their performances? And also the fact that they now, especially Tierney, who looks closer to ready, appear to be on a midweek rotation rather than a Premier League rotation. 
Yeah, I think um, we should all hold our hands up and say maybe they're, they're not quite ready. And the fact that Tinney didn't play at Sheffield United, maybe we can understand that a bit more a few days later. Um, I never thought Bellerin was ready. I think if I take Tierney first, I do think we've got a very good player on our hands there, without a doubt. And also, it seems like we've got a very good character. There's not many of those about in modern games. When you have one like him, you should thank your lucky stars because he seems like... He's a very popular person in the club already. He's got the right spirit. He's got the right edge. He just needs to get fitter. And I think maybe because the midweek game next week in Liverpool, I think by holding back the next couple of weeks, knowing they'll play in that game, potentially, I think Tierney will play in that game. Um, I think that's a smart thing to do. You don't want to go to Manfield without, without the right people in case it goes badly wrong. So I sort of get that. With Bellerin, I've got a, a touch more concern, but quite rightly, he's been out longer and it's much more of a serious injury. He's um, He seems to have lost a bit of power, right? So just pure muscle power. He looks light. He's, he doesn't look quite quick and why should he? He looks quite fit, but he just lacks power in in the moment, in duels, really, to really enforcing game, himself on the game. That will come with max practice. And I think you know the rotation he's on is a uh, is a good one. I, I do feel you know I felt for a little while now that um, the construct of the team is wrong. I, I think we're too deep as a defence. I think it's hurting so many players. It's hurting Sabias. It's hurting Torreira. We haven't got big distance players. If you are going to play big distances, then let's have a win, a win back situation, a three at the back situation, a system which is far more positionally based on the pitch, and you cover the pitch with with players in the system and you have a an exit plan which is obvious. I think that will suit our players a lot more at this phase of their fitness and integration and ad- adaptation to the league. It allows us to get our three best players off touch lines and closer together uh, and we can lean into our striking efforts and then we can have a team around them and put them in an armchair. That's what I would do. I think we get we'd get some bias out of this. I think we'd get better out of Pepe. I think we'd get better out of our returning fullbacks. I think it helps Chambers. I think it helps Mustafi, by the way, who I think had a decent game last night. We have players. It will help the integration of holding. And over the Christmas period, when we're going to be turning around a lot of games, I would like to see us move to that more. And I think it takes away the number 10 debate. You know, and I think that debate is dividing the club. So I think that's an issue. I think the fullbacks are coming. They're not here yet. I think Tierney will arrive when he arrives. We'll be better for it. And hopefully he'll be the player we all hope he'll be and stay injury-free. Bellman will be behind him. But again, towards the end of the game when Pepe came on, I think we all saw what could happen. And you know, I can't, can't wait for it to be a regular a regular thing because that right side could be spectacular if it gets going. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think part of the issue for me is just that um, I, look, and Tim, maybe just a quick sentence or two on this. It doesn't have to be a big deep dive, but, you know, I think big managers at big clubs tend to be a little less circumspect about getting their their star players back into lineups. Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe that's not the case. I, that is not data-driven. That's just in- intuition-driven. I, I don't know exactly what Emery's trying to do here, but to me, fullback's been a problem. Fullback is important to his system. They may not be totally ready. You just get them in there. These aren't academy kids. These aren't young kids where you're like, oh, if I, if I throw them to the Wolves now, their career will be ruined. Like These are big players on big money or big transfer fees who have big futures at the club and are playing a critical position that's been a problem for us. Like 
isn't there an argument that all of this pussyfooting around trying to get them back is probably just a waste of time and that you just throw them into the Premier League and let them play their way into form? Uh, with Bellerin, no. Um, just because I, of the severity uh, of the injury? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, as, as part of the uh, like the Arsenal Women podcast I do a couple of months ago, I, I had a chat with a guy who's a knee surgeon who's operated on ACL injuries Um and yeah, that was quite an enlightening discussion. And there's, you know, there's quite a lot that goes into the recovery from that injury. As Clive says, you know, basically when you have a big injury like that, you know, you have to like completely rest post-surgery for about eight weeks. And what happens to yeah. an athlete then is they lose all of their muscle, like all of their muscle deteriorates. So it takes a long time. Like they have to start from zero to professional athlete. Um, and that takes a long, long time. Um, but also the biggest cause of repeat injury is fatigue um and so what you don't want to do is fatigue them because that's when recurrences happen so with bellerin i'm kind of happy to take it slow and also um you know i, I think that showed last night and i you know he was um he was on my side in the second half and uh he he was really huffing and puffing um in the last 15 minutes or so didn't help that we were really chasing the game i think it might have been i, I don't know maybe it will was good for him but maybe it would have been better to be a, a slightly more controlled game um i, I yeah, spoke Tierney went to, down to cramp late in the game i remember yeah yeah exactly exactly I, I, I actually i spoke to jordan Nobbs uh last weekend who's recovering who's you know come back from her own acl injury and she did 90 minutes back to back in in two games and uh we talked about that and she kind of said look these were games that we knew Arsenal were going to control and we're going to have all of the ball. And, you know, these were, these were considered to like quite low load games for a central midfielder. Um, so just to kind of build her back up. Um, and, you know, she's a good month ahead, I think of Bellerin. Um, so like on, on kind of ACL injuries, I, I, I've spoken to people in the know, I guess. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy with that. Tierney, yeah, although Tioni's, you know, Tioni's problems seem to have been loading problems as well. And yep, he went down with cramp, and I think you saw him get caught on that goal. But I, I do think you've got a point in terms of, say, Abamyang had been out with a hernia. Um, you know, he his reintroduction wouldn't have been managed like this. No, he just gets thrown back in, and rightfully so. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's that's you're right. That that does happen with your big players like Messi. You know, all right. Kieran Tierney's not Lionel Messi, but you know what I mean. Like so says when you. Henri, well, yeah, when Henri and uh, Patrick Vieira and players like that used to get injured, you know, they weren't managed this much. You know, can, can um, I also make a point too that I, I guess this is why I just don't get it. Tim. I'm sorry, but like, all right, Vitoria is a competitive fixture. It's not a training match that's been arranged to get them fitness. You know what I mean? So like. Mm. Both our fullbacks played 90 minutes on Thursday. They could have played 90 minutes against Sheffield. And you can say, well, Sheffield's a much tougher game, much greater intensity. Like, it's still a football match where you're running around. Like, and again, yeah. I could understand if you're saying the guys we have out there are fine. Maybe with Chambers you could say that, but certainly not with Kolasinac. So if you think that Tierney can play 90 minutes against Vitoria, I get that it's a lower standard, Play him the 90 minutes against Sheffield instead. And if he gets yeah. caught out, you know what? 
our fucking left back gets caught out every game. So it, it, are, are we even going to notice the difference? Like, how do you transform this from an every midweek rotation to a Premier League rotation if you don't just put him into the Premier League? Because now we can't play. Yeah. I guess presume he can't. these guys can't play against Palace, which means are they playing yeah. Liverpool on Wednesday? Well, then that means they can't play against Leicester. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, they're, they seem to be trapped into that cycle now, which is not helpful. But particularly, you know, after the international break, there was just over two weeks. Tierney, Scotland, um, kind of revokes the call-up. So obviously there was a conversation with Arsenal. Um, so he had like two weeks on the training ground. I'm sure he got, they both got like a few days off in that time. So yes, um, but but as ever with these things, there just might be information that we don't have. Well, there will be information we don't have. It just depends on whether it, it kind of backs up Emery's, Emery's kind sure. of decision. But, but isn't football I, football? I think, like he just played 90 minutes of football. Like it's, it's still yeah, football. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And and actually even, you know, the conversation you guys had on Tuesday about bringing him on for the last 20 minutes against Sheffield United might might have been a, like a better substitution than some of the ones we made. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you you could say a lot about that as well. The, the less said, the better. Look, I, I think we should at least have a little fun on this pod. If you've listened to the 58 minutes preceding this, you deserve it. Clive, can we talk Pepe for a minute? Yeah, it's good. Okay. Um, look, I don't know that he was that great when he was on the pitch just in terms of his overall play. I think he was good. He did a lot of the Pepe stuff. Beat a man, drive us forward. And and I think he's been... I think Pepe has been one of our better performers this season right up until the point where he has to do the thing that makes the goal or scores the goal. In this game, he scored the two goals. Now, they're not from open play, regardless of whatever the Europa League commentator thought. <laughs> um, but they are sensational pieces of skill and technique the second one, there are some phenomenal from-the-ground views of it from behind and stuff where you can just see how exceptionally well-struck it is. For you, how impressed are you with these goals? And arguably, more importantly, how how significant could they be in, in terms of what Pepe goes on to do from here? I think for me, um, what I was looking for from him was danger. So when we were talking about our wide players and Mkhitaryan, Iwobi, and we toyed with Zahar in the summer... And there's a Pepe, and and all that I was thinking about is we need a we need a danger factor. We need a bit of swagger in the team. We need a dribbler. We need something that stops us being a passing team. And Pepe came on board, and the first thing he did was start beat players at Anfield. Not a bad start. He's obviously got something in his feet. He's got an amazing technique. But again, he was one that just didn't just didn't look fit. He tired quickly. When he tired, he started giving the ball away. His shooting was weak. His passing was wayward. But his intention and technique was really, really good. So, you know, as fans, we you know, many of us said, oh, yeah, he's going to come, he's going to come. But secretly, we were all worried. We were all a little worried. Maybe, please, please say we haven't bought a dud here, right? Because it's a very important investment. I think the Sheffield United game was the one where it started to turn because I felt he looked dangerous. He looked fast. He looked dangerous. And then he looked penetrative. He looked like he could run away from people. And that sort of made your eyebrows raise. And he should have scored his goal. And he, and it would have been a different week we'd have had this week. But then last night, as he comes on, you're thinking, what's he going to do? I thought he might do okay. But I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that level of technique. I mean, the second, he did have some good play within the game. But the second free kick, that's a elevation of talent. Because that's how it's being lined up. You don't get sort of semi-certainties from that sort of distance. 
But we can all see his technique, his body shape, everything about him. You're thinking he's going to score. You just look at his face, he's going to score. And then he puts it in the postage stamp. I mean, that level of delivery under pressure, they call it teacup, right? <laughs> Thinking clearly under pressure and delivering your talent, that is outstanding. And that's where you pay your money. And I, and I do feel he is the player that we need to complement someone like a Bamiyang to attract people to create space for him to do what he does. Does it fit massively alongside Lacazette? I'm not sure yet, but the three of them look like they could be a very good three. And I, and I do feel, for the future of Arsenal Football Club, that level of investment, I know the market's, you know, it's, it's inflated, but that level of investment, that's, that's a big number for Arsenal Football Club. We can't do that every six months. But it's very important that he does, he is what we want him to be. And last night we saw the signs of that. And, and this hope just continues, right? Yeah, it was it was fantastic. And I mean, while while I think the result is not super significant, what it spares us by winning is it spares us Emery then having to put out full strength sides in in coming Europa League matches. Um, because I think had we lost, there was a chance that we were going to have to see first teams in some of these Europa League matches. And now there's a chance we won't. Um, I just think every single player on the pitch at Arsenal right now looks like they'd be more comfortable if the distances were closer to other players. I just think that the the wide midfield where they're stretched apart from one another. I think the forwards who don't have fullbacks next to them. I think Aubameyang being isolated in the center. Every one of these players looks like they could benefit Pepe with an overlapping fullback that could exchange a pass with. Um, you know, Aubameyang, another forward who he, can, who he could play off of. Ceballos, a partner that he can exchange passes with. Everybody at Arsenal, except maybe Ganduzi, looks like they would benefit from having someone a little well, bit why, closer. Why do, why do you think our back line has become so deep this year? Because I, I thought I linked it to David Luiz. I just don't understand it. We are so deep. I think so a lot scared. of it's Shaka. I, I, you know, I just had an interesting conversation with someone in, in our uh, Facebook group. And, and he made a point that I think is right, which is Shaka likes the game in front of him. He doesn't trust his recovery pace. Shaka tends to sit a little, like his starting position's deeper than Ganduzi's. He, li- he likes to start a little deeper, come back a little further. And I think when your play in midfield starts just that little bit deeper, the defense behind you drops a little deeper. The forward yeah, line gets disconnected. I think Shaka's starting positions have an impact on the depth of our back line and the depth of our our, our midfield. I'm not sure I totally buy it because Shaka's been there a little while. And if you're saying about you, what you say is you get him off my toes. Get up. Get away from me. You're doing my job. Get away from me. and You might as well not be there. I'm wondering if it's something to do with the... The, the goalkeeper rules, you know, the changing in rules. Mm, yeah, starting deeper, that I, could be it. Yeah. I, I'm just, I've seen it, I've seen it since almost David Luiz arrived. I haven't got an answer. I don't like it because we're we're forcing jogging midfielders to run big distances. Watching Sabaya sprinting back last night, it's not a great look, right? <laughs> it's not a great look. But, you know, with the ball at his feet, twisting and turning in small spaces, he looks a lot better. So, uh, and he has got the ability to do a five-yard sprint to get a tackle in. But 15, 20 yards, it looks very ugly. And so I don't get it. I, I'm generally at a loss as to why the distance from front to back is so big because everything else is wrapped around that. That's because the technical style of Arsenal is built on the ability to move the ball, short, sharp, small spaces, body shape, rotation. That's us. We're moving away from that style. And I think it's not just the players not just the coach, I think it's the whole construct. Did you see what Bellerin said? Distances. 
Um, I did see something about DNA of... Um, yeah, I, I thought this was re- a really interesting comment. And, you know, you can... You know, you can construe it as being a a criticism of Emery. I, I'm not sure. Sh- you know, I think you're reading bias into it if, if you're doing that. But, you know, he basically said, you know, we know we have to play better. You know, good passing footballs in our DNA, exchanging passes, you know, good attacking plays in our DNA. We need to get back to that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm summarizing this probably mm. wrongly. But, you know, I, I think that you can make an argument, certainly, that, that that is not what we're building towards at the moment. <laughs> Some of that's technical skill of our players. They're not they're not playing great. They're not passing great. They're passing slow, passing behind people. But overall, Elliot, I think the distances are too big, and I agree with you 100. percent And I just don't know why. I don't know if that's coached. I don't know if that's just players taking charge, feeling scared. I don't know. But it's it's not working, and it's underpin underpinning the lack of style that we're used to at the moment, in my opinion. Mm. Well, let's finish with this. Uh, well, two things. Just, Tim, real quick, real, real quick, because you're our Brazil correspondent. Another good night mm. for Martinelli, in my opinion. A guy who, yeah. to me, looks more center forward than he does wide forward. I think sometimes we look at body types and physical s- styles and just assume someone's a winger, but I think he's Cunaguero. I think he's a guy who shows up where the ball is in the box, who can get one touch to get it out of his feet and get it away. I, I-, I think he looks... You know, he had the one shot that was kind of right at the goalkeeper where I think the commentator said he should have scored, but I actually thought the way he arrived into that space, it was from a Bellerin cutback, by the way, and one of Bellerin's really bright moments attacking, showing what he can do. Um, I love the look of him. I love the look of him as a center forward. How about you? Mm. Yeah, yeah, same. He he um, he gets into those half spaces really well. He's, he's not very kind of traditional in terms of, you know, standing he doesn't stand in central spaces. He doesn't quite go into wide spaces either. He, I, he, he looks very South American to me. He looks, you know, Sanchez, Aguero, he, Suarez. He is literally South American. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he's got that. But what's quite interesting though about that, he's got um, because they're all street footballers, right? And Arsene Wenger spoke about this a few years ago. How South America's producing better number nines because they're street players and, you know, they mix up. They're not in academies, so they play with kids four years older than them who are kicking them about. And you've got to be, you got to be wiry and you've got to be smart. But and, and Martinelli, Martinelli's like an interesting mix because you know he's played Brazilian lower league football, but at the same time his his dad has been preparing him for this for years. Like he had a dietitian when he was fourteen, so he's had a bit of like the Neymar treatment. And like Neymar's not a street footballer. Neymar has been honed in academies because everyone knew he was going to be a superstar since he was 10, 11 years old. And Martinelli, I'm, I'm not saying he'd get to that level. There, there's something similar happened there. Like his dad has been planning this for quite a while and has quite carefully managed his career. Um, but what's what's pleasantly surprised me is that he's got that kind of that street footballer to him and I love the way he closes down and I love the way he just picks up areas that um, you know aren't centre forward areas but he runs kind of from half spaces into the centre and and you know we're seeing from the amount of headed goals he's scoring he's he's making himself really difficult to pick up because when a cross comes in he doesn't stand on the penalty spot and go give it to me there um, you know a bit like Tim Cahill Tim Cahill used to get loads of headed goals 
but not because he was standing on the penalty spot going stick it on my head he was in reality he was making a run forward from you know from quite deep and, and Martinelli is he's not coming from deep but he just comes from a slightly wide angle and uh, and gets his head in there and yeah I, I agree I, I like the look of him as a, I think he looks like a really modern center forward yeah that's really I mean it's really encouraging because it is a position that I think we all agree not sure we what's happening. Future proof. We, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially given the contract mm. situations, and and any time you can get a striker who works out for you cheaply or through the academy, it's a huge win because it is the most expensive position to address, as we have seen all too painfully. Uh, Clive, I know you love analyzing players, so I can't shut you out of this. You want to give a quick quote on on the Martinelli talk? <laughs> no, I think I think you great shout from Tim on Aguero. I think. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> when what do you mean from Tim? Well? Oh, sorry, mate. Come on. Oh, if I'm going to get one thing right on a podcast, I'm going to take credit for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you did. And then Tim added to it. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, he, uh, he, point, he pointed out that he's South American. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so I think when you're a crosser and you look up, you look up and you look for spaces and you look for the player that's moving. And he's very good at proactive movements. He does the old one run for the defender, one run for me. So he anticipates when the crosser's going to cross. He's already made the first movement, creates separation. When the crosser gets his head up, he thinks, oh, I can see him. I've just put it right on him. And I think it's because you see a player that's shaping to go and get it. I think sometimes players don't get the ball because their body language is not great. And so you end up putting the ball into an area and creating fight balls. You can always tell when a player's confident because they really want it. And he wants it. He's prepared to shoot off both feet. He doesn't care who's around him. He doesn't care if um, 200 grand a week and Lacazette is next to him. He's taking his shot. Mm-hmm. He's got that edge to really forge his career. You know, somebody that's come from a different background to we, that we normally used to. I've arrived in London and I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make every second on the pitch count. I'm going to run. I'm going to work. I'm going to force myself into the team, force myself into the manager, take every chance I could possibly get to score goals and dictate my future. And maybe players like Maitland-Niles, who have got lots of talent, need to get some of that edge into him. Because talent without attitude won't get you anywhere. Right. Mm. So get your attitude right. Really stop sulking. Stop crying. You're at Arsenal Football Club. You won't be here very long unless you wake up. Right. So get going, because you've got it all. You've, you've held our defence, been part of our defence for over a year and a half now. Start to play. Find excuses to play, not find excuses not to play. And Martin is a great example of somebody that's you know, trying to arrive within the club in the right way. Yeah. I, you know, I think the important thing here is we found the next person to anoint as the saviour for the next three weeks or so. All right, I said that was going to be it, but we have to touch on one just thing, just super quick, I promise. Uh, Tim, Jose mm. Mourinho was the invited guest of Raul Sanlehi, uh for the game, apparently. Mm. And my initial reaction to this was, who cares, whatever. Jose Mourinho went to see a football match in London with Raul, who would know him from, from La Liga time, and it, you know it's not a big deal. And then I stopped and I said, well, wait a minute. Jose Mourinho is on record saying his next job is going to be in London. And Raul Sanlehi, last I checked, is not a complete fucking moron. I'm not saying Jose is our next manager, because please God, no. But I gotta believe Raul, coming from Nike, coming from Barcelona, understands optics. So now I have Mm -hmm. a slightly different take on this. I don't think you can innocently invite Jose fucking Mourinho to a game where your current manager is embattled and you're the 
president of football operation, whatever the hell the, the title is that you have. I don't think you can do that innocently and just smirk and expect no one to think anything of it. So I've, I've come around not to the idea that Jose's our next manager, but to the idea that there's just a tiny little bit of there there. Am I wrong? Mm-hmm. No, no, I don't think so. I, I think you're absolutely right, Raul. You know, it's in many respects, it's a bit like the Mesut social media posts. Like, even if that's not what's being said, they know that that's how it will be interpreted. And in the end, that's the most important thing in a scenario like this. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, it doesn't matter if Jose is the next manager. What matters is optics. Guys like Raul understand optics. And there are optics here. Clive, I mean, you understand optics. I like using the word optics. Optics. Clive, tell me about optics. Well, let me tell you how I see this situation, right? And I'm going to give you a scenario. I've always felt that Mourinho has always wanted the Arsenal job or a job like the Arsenal job. I felt he was super jealous that Wenger had this role where he could lose games and no one cared. It was like he had a job for life, right? So he always wanted a club where he could develop. I think he... He thinks, like to think of himself as a developing manager, but I'm not sure he is. And I'm not sure he's allowed to be. So when he went to Manchester United, I think that was intention for him to be there a long time. Once he realised that the board wasn't working with him and didn't buy him the player that they bought a year later for for more money, I think he thought, sod this, I can't develop as I want to. They're not going to give me a chance. They're going to block me off. So he decided to sign his contract and then run away with the money. Right. So I think... Arsenal has changed now, so I think we are closer to his own agent, if I'm correct, and Tim would know better than me. Um, his agent is now within our club. Um, we know about Kia within our club. The club has changed from a network perspective, and I don't dismiss it, is all I'm saying. Now, another thing I heard recently that made me think, Wenger spoke about... They asked me about Emery and how he's doing in the other club. And he said, oh, I haven't been back. It's too soon. What about Emery? He's doing fine. He said, but then he spoke about the protection of the values of the club. And this is where I have a, a slight issue. I'm just surmising here. Mm-hmm. I think Emery is potentially impacting the values by which many of us has grown up from a playing style of things. We've all decided right now that's really important because we're not quite winning as we'd like. I'm not sure we were saying that 18 months ago, but there you go. But also, is the whisper of Mourinho getting closer to try to edge his way into Arsenal, which would go very much against the values of the club. I think that's just a little line for Wenger maybe start to think, is there going to be a fork in the road and Arsenal are going to change direction? Because what we're doing at the moment is we're building a young team below the team. What this potentially could need is a different direction. It could need a direction of a superstar manager to really bring in superstar players and redefine their identity through the manager again. I'm just throwing it out there as a scenario. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't dismiss this. I wouldn't dismiss it. And it's, I haven't been online. I've been working too hard lately, damn it. But I will, I will go online this weekend and see what people are saying and see if it's something that people are behind or against. And I'm, I'm generally not sure as I say this right now, but I just thought I'd throw out that thought process. 
I think that is the perfect way to end the pod and leave people wanting more. I know I do. And you know what? You will get more because this Sunday, the Arsenal play Crystal Palace. And I don't need to tell you we have a phenomenal recent track record with Crystal Palace. And they by no means have any player who we recently expressed interest in, who wanted to come to Arsenal, who we passed on to take Pepe instead. So there is no narrative here. There is nothing to be worried about. Just a routine, heavy Arsenal victory ahead. Tim is on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Hey, Clive. So when we win 6 nil, sorry, 10-0 at the weekend, um, should we do the rewatch of the 5-0 first half or the 5-0 second half? No, I don't mind. We'll, uh, I'll go first half for a change. Yeah, all right, we'll see, do that. I think we can see how we start a game. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I want the first half Aubameyang hat trick or the second half Lacazette hat trick, but we'll, we'll decide that after the weekend. Sign up for our Patreon, for God's sake. The Discord is a blast. There's tons of stat stuff in there. Giant Gooner's killing it in there. Scott's killing it. We got Oscar Wood on there talking about Emery and, and all of the fun that goes along with him. We got uh, we got rewatch pods. We got, we got something for everybody. So please do that. And if you don't want to do that, please don't do it. Only do it if you want to. We love you either way. And we really, really, really appreciate you listening. I know that um, it hasn't always been the most fun season, but it's been a fun season of podcasting for you and with you and, and interacting with you. And we don't say it enough, but uh, the community of people who listen to this pod make it a blast for me to be a part of uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, and the Discord, and so on. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys. And uh, and we will um, we'll have more good content from you. Have I said goodbye to you guys? Did we say goodbye to you guys already? Yeah. We did? Yeah. We did? Yeah. Oh, I missed it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, in any event, that's the extra professional close that we are going to do. You know what? A Europa League close to a Europa League pod, but we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Palace no. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.